Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Before we dive into today's mentoring moments with Ellen Bennett, who went from aligned cook to CEO, I want to thank Braintree for supporting our show. For everyone who wants to grow their business, if you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree, rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com forward slash Forbes. The following program is a Forbes and Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Denise Ristari, and you're listening to Mentoring Moments, a podcast where smart, witty, and bold women are sharing their triumphs and their skids. We aren't just talking, we're taking action, and we're inviting you to join us every week in my New York City apartment. And sitting across from me today at the table where everything happens in my apartment is Ellen Bennett. You know when you meet someone and you think, wow, you think she's got vision, she's smart, she's witty, she's got like more energy than the Energizer bunny. Well, that's Ellen Bennett, who is 29 years old, you're Mm -hmm. 29, and she's also known as the Apron Lady. The headline of this intro could read, from line cook to CEO of multi-million dollar opportunity. The company is Headley and Bennett. It's a custom apron and culinary workwear company based in Los Angeles. And so Ellen is here today in New York, flew in from LA, and I'm so thankful, Ellen. Thank you for being here. Absolutely, I'm so excited to be here. And the story goes that four years ago, Ellen was working as a line cook in Los Angeles at two restaurants, and she was wearing aprons that were torn and tattered, and she realized that that had an impact on morale, and wearing frayed aprons really did have that impact on how people felt about themselves. And so instead of sitting there and thinking about it, she actually did something about it, and she created these aprons that are really cool and functional. And then she started getting attention from the press, like, Oh, the New York Times or some small player in the press. And some of the celebrity chefs like Martha Stewart and Mario Batali. And those were the stamps of approval that made her a real player in the restaurant world. Now Ellen has 14,000 square feet in her factory in Los Angeles. She employs over 40 people. Her aprons can be found in over three and 4,000 restaurants worldwide. And the other day I was in Whole Foods and there was this great display. And I was like, I know that. It was a big display of your aprons. <laughs> Ellen were just everywhere. And realizing that aprons just aren't for chefs, Ellen has started creating aprons for gardeners and potters and people who are doing things with their hands and with their bodies that need those aprons. She's collaborated with SpaceX, Google, Lexus, Delta, Four Seasons, Food and Wine, and thousands of others to create functional aprons for their specific needs. But this is more than a business for Ellen, and you can see it when she talks about it. It's about building a community. It's about doing more than just making money. And that is what she's doing. And that in itself is a mentoring moment because Ellen discovered what makes her special. 
And one of those things is uplifting other people. And that's what she's doing in her company. And the people I know, Ellen, who I've said, Ellen Bennett's going to be on the show. I'm not making this up. Everyone I've said this to has said, I love Ellen. You're the most popular 29-year-old. I don't know how you get around. You get around. They're like, I love Ellen, and you're going to love her. And they're so right. I love being with you. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. That's so what a what an intro. You are awesome. I will say I feel 100% the same way when I first talked to you on the phone. I was like, where has this lady been all my life? It's like I already knew her. Oh, there she is. We had this great connection. We're planning dinners. We were like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We had this great like connection. Like 10 minutes right. into our call. Right. like, I'm coming over. Right. We're going to have a sleepover. Over. It's going to be amazing. And that's fine with me. You're welcome anytime. So I'm going to kick off with my mentoring moment. Okay. And it's a moment that I've told a few times. I've told it a year or so ago, but I tell it on one-on-one a lot these days. And everybody is like, you need to share that again on the podcast because a lot of people haven't heard it. So that's what I'm doing. Give it to me. I I can't wait to hear it to you. So it's the day that I was in my late thirties. I was on paper. My life looked perfect, right? I had the perfect house. I had this 7,000 square foot house. My husband owned this great restaurant. He was charismatic. I have this beautiful daughter and I have this shiny corner office at USA Today. On paper, it all looks great. But behind the scenes, it was just all falling apart. The shiny office wasn't so shiny anymore. I was bored with what I was doing. My marriage was falling apart. The house that I just bought a year before, this great 7,000 square foot house, was supposed to make me happier. And here I am. And it was like my dream house. It wasn't the dream house, but it was filled with dreams. It's where my daughter was going to get married. She was five at the time. And I could picture the cars were going to be here and people are going to be in the backyard. And suddenly I'm moving out of this dream house and everything is falling apart and I'm moving out because I'm getting divorced. Wow. And although I was the one who initiated the divorce, that doesn't mean you want to be divorced. Right. So I'm just sitting in my walk-in closet, just sobbing because this is not, I'm on the floor and this is not what I wanted my life to be. And the moving man who was this like six foot four burly guy with a do-rag on comes in, sits down next to me, puts his arm around me. We're in Washington, D.C. It's August. We're both really sweaty. Puts his arm around me and says, honey, you just lost your groove. You need to find your groove and you're going to find it. I've been watching you all day walking around and you have, oh, you're, you have tears you off. <laughs> it's such a good story. I'm like falling over here. Pull it together, Alan. Pull it together. I've got a it's, towel. You got a okay. towel. <laughs> There's a towel under the microphone and I'm going to use right. it. It's, it was one of those moments and he was so right. And it's, it's really carried me through life because whenever I've been at that point where I feel that, I can't go on. I just know that I just lost my groove for then. And that day, I remember thinking, I've been in therapy for years, and I'm getting some of the best advice from the moving man. In your closet. Right, in my closet, sweating with his arm around me with a do-rag on. But, you know, it goes back to mentoring moments. It's those moments in life that we just have to listen to and be aware and be present, that they aren't always in the therapist's office. They aren't always with the mentor, you know, having lunch. They're around us all the time. And that's life. Yes. And you have to, like, feel them and embrace them and not ignore them. Right. Then you'll get through it. 
And that losing your groove of, you know, have you felt like you've ever lost your groove? Oh my gosh. Yes. You lose your groove every day. Five minutes ago. (laughs) Exactly. And then you find it, you hit the floor, you, you, you whine a little bit and then you get back up and you keep going. And that is, that is life. I think that if you, if you don't feel the low lows, you can't feel the high highs. You have to really just let them occur because then you have perspective and you have something to reflect off of and say, that was a terrible situation. And now I'm in a better one. And I got myself there and you sort of prove yourself wrong. Are there things that you do that help you get there? Like, is there, and I'm not, I, I, yeah. I don't know if there's any magical pill that of we course. take, right? No, now. no, like, there really but isn't. I think sometimes there are things like, is it just taking that step back and saying, let me breathe and think this through and putting it in perspective? I think it definitely deep breaths, taking a moment. I, I love going on walks, just like taking a moment, putting the phone down, getting out of the building and just actually looking around, trying to get out of your head helps. Cause sometimes I feel like the more in your head you are about something, the harder it is to navigate yourself out of your head. Um, so I like going on adventures that have to do with like physical stuff. So I'll, you know, I'll go running or I'll go to like extreme boxing classes or I'll sign up for insane sports. Like I'll sign up for a marathon because I know that it's going to like kick my ass and I need to train for it. So then I have to force myself to make time to train for the marathon I'm signing up for. Or last year I did um, a 300 mile bike ride to raise money for no kid hungry. And you know, I had to train a lot and my boyfriend and I did it together. And the crazy thing is on that bike ride, I actually crashed really hard and I got 21 stitches in the palm of my hand. And it was this, it just makes your lifeline look bigger. It really does. So I think there's, I think there's something good about that. You just extended your right? lifeline. I just extended my right. life and I have a little, uh, heart tattoo right below it. Aww. So it's very indicative of like, they aren't bumps in the road. They are the road. This is just like something that happened in the middle of something and that I was trying to do that was good for the world. And I, I had a a crash, but it's okay. I survived and I was stronger for it. And, and it was great. And that is what it is. I'm not, I don't regret having done it. I would have done it again, but it's just an example of like things that I do to get myself out of the day to day. And I think I really enjoy pushing myself out of my comfort zone all the time. So anything I can do that makes me stress those, stretch those mental muscles is good. And that actually gets me out of my head because it gets you out of your comfort zone. It gets you out of your complacency state. And you're just like, okay, cool. This is a new layer of life and you can get out there and do something new and experience something new. And I think we're really lucky to be where we are in the world right now. And we have so many opportunities and we just have to remember that and keep it always in perspective that we're alive and we have arms and legs and eyeballs that work. Like you have to respect that and say, holy cow, I am a lucky person and I can't just like take it for granted. I have to use all these things that I have that a lot of people maybe don't have. So that helps me keep going. You're so optimistic. I mean, it's, it's, it's so refreshing. And I was thinking earlier this morning, because we were planning a dinner party and I needed to cancel a few weeks ago um, because of the snow. And a part of me was like my my email I was going to send out, I was going to start it with, I'm so sad. Yeah. And then did I didn't. I started it off with, okay, so a blizzard is good luck when you're planning a Christmas when you're planning a dinner party, right? Yeah. And, and it's changing that frame of mind, even something Completely. that small instead of like I'm and I am sad. I'm sad that I had to cancel the dinner. But it was more of like, okay, 
I can't do anything about it. There's a blizzard. So let's just go on the positive side of it. And I think it made me really realize how often we don't do that, how right. often we get into the downside of it and right. say, you know what? This is good luck. There's yeah. something good that's going to happen out of this, so let's move it forward. Totally. Yeah, and it isn't to say that I don't have bad days or that things that are rough don't happen to me because they absolutely do. It's just how you approach them, I think. You know, you you have a, a tricky situation and you embrace it and you're like, this sucks and I can't believe I'm going through this. But okay, what's the solution? How can I find a way out? And I'm always looking for that solution. I'm looking for that little light at the end of the tunnel in everything that happens because you have to keep going. And I think I really, I really have always felt that, but once I started my own company and had people that I was responsible for, I really felt that. And I thought, I can't let these people down. These are these are my troops. This, this is my squad. Like, I'm in charge. I got to row these guys out of this, you know, shitstorm and get them to the island when we're in the middle of the ocean. Like, you can't just, the captain can't just give up and say, I'm throwing the oars in. <laughs> I'm jumping, guys. Goodbye. Like, you just can't do that. You have to keep going. And, and every time I do that, I find that I had more of a capacity to do something than I thought I did. And then I just don't go back from there. So you just keep growing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And you're like, holy cow, I did that. And you did all this in 29 years, which we're going to get to that. <laughs> but first, I want to hear your mentoring moment because I don't know what it's going to be. And I don't want to ask you questions. It could be your mentoring moment. So share your mentoring moment with us. and okay. Then we'll take it from there. So my mentoring moment was about how my life has not been a straight a straight path to get to where I wanted to go. When I was um, younger, I decided I wanted to cook. I wanted to be a chef. And it was this thing that when I was little, I'd go to Mexico and I would cook with my grandma. And I, I just, I loved food. I loved seeing everyone pile into the kitchen and hang out and make tamales and just contribute. And it didn't matter if you were the husband or the wife or the cousin or the neighbor. It was just like everybody was an equal in the kitchen. And I loved that. I saw that from a very young age. And so I decided I wanted to do that. A few years later went by, my parents got divorced. Um, my, my mom was now a single mother and I started really helping her out at home and taking on a sort of, you could say fatherly role in my household. And, uh, it taught me a lot of things about life and responsibility and just how to like you don't know how to do something, well, figure it out and you will know how to do it. You know, my mom needed to balance her checkbook. And I was like, well, I should probably help her with that. And I was like 13, 14 years old. And so I started balancing my mom's checkbook and, you know, she would get home late and she wouldn't take the time to like pay bills and stuff. And there'd be like past due notices. And I was like, well, maybe I should just do that. I'm here after school. Why not? And so I started taking on all these opportunities, you could call them to help my mom, which inevitably helped me a lot because it just taught me that I could do it. And so by the time I turned 18, I was cooking for my mom and taking care of my household, like taking care of my sister, walking her to school, bringing her home, doing the bills, designing the house, painting rooms. I was just like owning my house. That was my world. So I was like, I'm going to make it the best world ever. Um, <laughs> and so when I turned 18, I told my mom, like, I really want to go to Le Cordon Bleu or CIA in New York. These were like my dream schools. And, you know, culinary school is not cheap. It's like $60,000, $70,000. And we just couldn't afford it. My, my mom was like, sorry, we're just not going to do this. And it was, it was a little bit crushing because she had never said no to anything. She always, she never said you can't do it. She would find a way or we'd find an alternative. Um, and this was sort of one of those first times where she was just like, we just, I don't I don't know. We just can't. And so 
I decided to move to Mexico City. <laughs> and I moved to Mexico City and I went to school there instead. I did that for a second. Why Mexico City? I am half Mexican. And like I said earlier, I had gone so many times when I was younger and I loved that lively life that right. Mexico lives. People are alive and they hug you and greet you with so much warmth when you go into anybody's home. It doesn't matter if you just met them. You're like, oh, I'm welcome. And I loved that. And I wanted to feel welcome in my life. And I was 18 and my mom was saying, you can't go to culinary school. And I was sort of entering the LA life of everybody's an actor. And, you know, it was just very like glamorous and glitzy. And I, I didn't feel like I fit in. So I, I went back to what I knew, which was Mexico. And so I went to school there. I signed up for this culinary school that was not the school I wanted to go to, but it was a great school in Mexico. And, and I learned all kinds of things when I was in Mexico. I learned really, I think I got like my, what is it called? My, uh, my sea legs. I found, I found my life sea legs. Um, I, I got jobs. I found this apartment. I rented it out to foreigners that came to, to Mexico and I was like charging them in dollars instead of in pesos. So I was paying my rent while I was going to school with the help of like all these people that were, you know, in, in Mexico. And, um, I was the lottery announcer for Mexico. You were the lottery? I was the okay. lottery announcer. <laughs> like literally that was one of my daytime jobs. Um, how do you I, get that job? I mean, I don't know. I spoke. Do you apply? <laughs> I, I actually came in as a sub for this one girl and they loved me and they were just like, well, you're great. You should just keep coming back. And I just kept coming back. So I became the official lottery announcer. Um, but these were all these layers of things that were happening in my life that back then when I was 18, 19, 20, I was thinking, what am I doing? Like, why am I, why am I a lottery announcer in Mexico? This is so bizarre. Why am I like subletting my entire house to pay my rent in Mexico? Like so bizarre. And you think you kind of grow up thinking that life is like this really nice straight line. And it turns out it really isn't. It's like a fusilli noodle and it's just going all over the place. And, um, so I was living all these lives in Mexico, getting through culinary school. I graduated and I kind of had a really beautiful life that I had set up for myself there. I had a great apartment. I had a great boyfriend. Everything seemed good. But I was 22 years old by the time I finished all that. And I thought, this can't be it. This can't be all of life. I have my my little culinary career here. And uh, I think I want to go back home and do something with it. And so I took all of that knowledge that I gained in Mexico, sold everything I had and started life over, you could say. And it was... And how old were you when you started life over? I started life over at 22. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> so... I'm feeling like an underachiever right now, but that's okay. <laughs> this is turning into more of um, more of a mentoring life moment than my story, but I, ho I hope that's okay. Um, so I came back to the States, and I basically got a job at this two Michelin star restaurant called Providence, worked there, started Headley and Bennett. Um, and I'm going to power through this and then you can ask me more stuff later. But basically four years later, um, Le Cordon Bleu, the school that I wanted to go to in the first place when I was 18, reached out to me because now, you know, we had this company and we were outfitting thousands of chefs all over the United States and the world. And they wanted me to be their keynote speaker at Le Cordon Bleu. And, and the irony of it was that this was the school that I wanted to go to when I was younger that I couldn't afford and I couldn't be there. And yet now I was going to be there telling these people like, you can do it. And it was just like, 
Ugh. I love when that happens in life. Yeah, you're just like but it's, 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 I, I get the other part that you wanted to be there. Is that it's that yeah. knife in the heart? And but the other part is like I was. You were meant to be connected to the cordon bleu. Yeah, exactly. And so they said, you know, we want you to be our keynote speaker. And I was like, holy cow! And it's either were I don't know. There was like four thousand people. There was a lot of people. And uh, so I went up there and I and I told my story and I spoke about how the journey is not a straight line and you know they are not bumps in the road they are the road it's part of it so you got to just embrace it. And after I finished my speech they were like and we have something for you. And they came out and they had a certificate. They had a like they were going to give me an honorary degree. So they came out they surprised me with an honorary degree to cordon bleu and I like had to pull it together to not burst into tears but I couldn't believe how crazy life is like that like you have an idea and it sits there and maybe it's not born the day that you want it to be born or maybe it doesn't happen how you think it's gonna happen but then it happens and you're like wow life is kind of amazing and beautiful like that so in the end I got to graduate from Le Cordon Bleu but not only did I save two hundred thousand exactly save everybody a lot of money but I got so much more out of the journey and I wouldn't have had it any other way so it's okay if it doesn't happen like you think it's going to happen because most of the time it doesn't. <laughs> and that you didn't throw the temper tantrum. You may have been upset when it didn't happen, but you found an alternative. It wasn't woe is me. You know, I'm going to sit on the sofa because I didn't get where I wanted to right. go. It's saying I didn't get to where I wanted to go right now. Right. I'm going to find another avenue because I think when you look at your end game and saying, this is my goal, my goal is to cook yeah. and to be a chef, whatever your goal is. Yeah. And then that piece doesn't exactly happen, but I'm still going to get to the goal. And I think a lot of people don't do that. It's right. you get shut down and it's woe is me. What am I going to do now? I'm a failure. Right. I didn't get to go where I wanted to go. I'll never be good. You know, somebody yeah. else is going to Harvard. My other yeah. friend's going to Yale and look at me, I can't go. And I, that's very special, and I think that's a really important lesson for everyone to learn is that there are many ways to get to where you want to go. Yeah. You know, I, I laugh about this because I'm a college, I dropped out of college, and now I'm a guest lecturer at Stanford. So isn't it's that really ironic? Funny, and I'm an honorary professor. Wow. So, you know, it's like whenever you think that it'll never happen, these things happen just because you didn't get. You didn't go down that road, but you went down this road. Yeah. And that road ended up getting you something yeah. because you worked really hard to get down that road that you ended up going down. I completely agree. And I think that life is everybody has a different road. And, you know, comparison is a terrible thing, but you have to just take the road that's in front of you and make that road. And if it doesn't exist, you carve it out. Get a machete. You make your path. Yes. And you just find your journey. That's a great, good tweet. Get a machete. Make your path. Get a machete and make make that path path in life. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we'll be tweeting that. So are you a risk? Are you a risk taker? I think I'm more of like a life taker. Okay. So explain that. Well, I want to be just like you. So I want to be a life taker too. How do I want to be like you. Want to be like me when you grow up? I want to be like you when I grow up. I'm only 40 years older than you. (laughs) But when I do grow up, I want to be just like you. Oh, well, I have to say ditto to you. Um, I'm meaning like you've got life in front of you and yeah, you can stand on the sideline and watch it go by or you can leap in and take the bruises and take the punches and then you get up and you're stronger for it and then you keep going. And at the end of the day, you'll have lived so much more of an adventure than if you just stood by and were afraid of the adventure. I say just jump in and embrace it. 
Okay, so I'm 20-something, and I say to you, I'm afraid. I have this dream, but I'm afraid. What do you tell me? Anytime people say that, because a lot of people say that, I'm just like, just start. Just begin. Just one foot in front of the other. And yes, there will be tornadoes and explosions along the way, and you might cry several times, and it's going to be really hard at moments, but it's not impossible. And if you look back at all these amazing people that achieved amazing things, they went through hell in a handbasket to do those things. And then you look back on them and you're like, wow, what a hero, what an amazing person. But when that person was alive, people weren't saying that they were heroes. They were just like, ugh, what a weirdo. Why is he doing that? That's so strange because change is like a change of perspective and people don't always embrace it. So just because people are frowning down on whatever it is that you're doing or they're like, oh, that's cute. That's not a good idea. That doesn't mean you need to stop. You need to like hold on to that dream and keep sailing. And do you let what other people say to you impact you, what people think about you? I think that it definitely affects me sometimes. There's definitely um, moments where it does, but then I sort of have to put my blinders back on and keep going. And and it takes a moment. It really does. There's times where your blinder falls off <laughs> and you're like, where did the blinder go? Get it back. I need the blinder. Um, and, and you let outside influences affect you. And then you realize that those are just people that are not actually living and that you are and that that's okay. Put the blinder back on and you keep going. And my mom always said when I was younger, she's like, she's like the only way to really like push, like tell people to stop being quiet is by just succeeding at life. Like that's the way that you can actually shut people up. You just succeed. You continue to succeed no matter what happens, Ellen. You just keep going. And I think my mom is such a great example of that. You know, she got divorced, single mom, and raised my sister and I. And and it was not easy by any means. And she just every day kept going. And she was a nurse. So it was like 12-hour shifts. And it's a life that, like, is not pretty. And I watched her do it. And she did it because she loved us. And at the end, my sister and I have come out into the world. And I'm just like... I have to succeed because my mom poured her heart and soul into me and I need to then do that for others. And she showed me that it is possible no matter what comes your way, because my parents had like a nasty divorce, not the pretty divorce. That's just like all organized and pinned up. It was like a telenovela divorce. Um, so yeah, and I'm still here to tell the tale. So (laughs) I can do it. You can do it too. And that is so important to know that we can get through it. And I think by sharing these stories, we're able to say, I got through it. And we all have a different story, right? Yeah. It's all our own story that we own. But I, it's great to know that we've all gone through it. I've told the story many times about my adoption and I had a fall through. And as you know, the birth mother took the baby back. And as awful as that was... And I didn't think I was going to get through it. You get through it. Yeah. And then something better happens. I have my daughter who is my daughter who there I can't, we were meant to be together, that the universe was looking down on me and actually doing me a favor at that time. You can't see it that way. Yeah. But you know, it's, you get through it, but you've just got to keep believing and you need a great support system. Yeah. I think that's really important. And you've had your mom when you were younger. Do you have a support system now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think my my team at Headley & Bennett is a big part of my support system. But I've also established a lot of relationships with other really amazing entrepreneurs that are also on the journey with, you know, through business ownership. And it can get lonely and you can 
you know, find yourself in a position where you can't talk about everything with everyone or not everybody understands what it means to like pay a lot of money in workers comp or how do you figure this out or how did you fire that person or how are you setting up your budget marketing budgets? You know, there's all kinds of things you go through. And so what I've found is that there's other entrepreneurs going through the same path. And I just reach my hand out and say, let's, let's do this together. How are you doing it? And well, what are you doing to make that happen? And then we just sort of crowdsource knowledge between each other. And I have a lot of people like that now in my life. And it's like a community of entrepreneurs and a community of friends. And you just have to have people that have knowledge that can help you and that you can help them. And and it's really important to have that. You don't need to hero it out and try to do it by yourself or think that you need to know everything to accomplish everything. There's a layer in my life every day where I'm still learning stuff. And when I don't know something, I admit it to myself and then I go and find an answer. You don't, it's not like I was born with a, a PhD or I know everything there is to know about business. I don't have a business degree, but when I don't know the answer to something, I go and figure it out. And that is such as life. You have to figure it out. And we're going to do, I'm done with that. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the aprons because I yeah. want the listeners to understand what your business is. Yeah, yeah. Tell us what your business is. <laughs> Who's this apron lady? Right. Who's the apron lady? <laughs> why, why are we calling you the apron lady? So, okay, after my whole adventure in Mexico and moving back to the States, um, I wanted to have a taco empire. That was really like my dream. I wanted to in taco land. Um, and so I thought, okay, I need to get a great job at a great restaurant to understand how restaurant world works. So I walked into this restaurant called Providence. Um, it's a two Michelin star restaurant in LA. It's voted the best restaurant in Los Angeles every year, one for one. It's incredible. Everything is like tweezer food. It's very fancy. And I walked in there and basically asked for a job and was like, I want to show you guys that I can work hard and I don't know what I'm doing, but I will prove to you that I will learn. And, uh, and that was my journey into restaurant world. And while I was there living this, you know, quote unquote dream that I wanted, that I had, and I thought, Oh, chef life, it's very glamorous and whatever. And you realize that, you know, you're having your ass handed to you literally every night, um, working insane hours and really like you have to have some serious backbone to work in the back of house, which is what they call the kitchen in a restaurant. And, um, and I was working there looking around at my fellow teammates in this nightly battle that is service, the dinner service shift. And, um, I, I found it very bizarre how we all looked and felt pretty terrible Yet we were making some of the most beautiful food in Los Angeles, truly. Like there were artists around me. These people made food and created things that I just couldn't believe the things we were inventing in there with food. And I thought, why is there such a separation between those two? Why can't we like bridge the gap and have something that people can wear that they feel proud about what they're doing, that have a sense of dignity and like pride? And um, and I thought, gosh, I, uh, if only a uniform could do that for us. And so I had this idea and I also, I told you, I love to run and do all kinds of athletic things. And I, the first time I ran a marathon, the first thing I did was get a proper outfit. I went and got like this awesome Adidas outfit. And I was like, I am a boss right now. I look amazing she in my outfit. She has her hands on her hips yeah. right now. She's sitting down with her hands on her hips. <laughs> I didn't even realize I did that. You, you're you're like, taking the pose. And, <laughs> and assumed the pose. I assumed the pose. And so I got this outfit and I went and I ran the New York Marathon. And so I thought, gosh, I want to do that in the kitchen too. So I had this apron idea. 
And then life arranged itself as it does sometimes. And two weeks later, my chef was like, hey, Ellen, we're going to have this girl. She's going to make us some aprons. Do you want to get in on that apron order and order one for yourself? And I was like, chef, I have an apron company. I'll make you those aprons. And he's like, what are you talking about? You're a cook in my kitchen. And I'm like, no, chef, you don't understand. I just got a doing business as I'm a professional apron lady now. And I basically like convinced him on the spot to give me this order of 40 aprons. It's hard to say no to you, I'll bet. <laughs> I was a little convincing. I was very excited. You're like standing on his feet. You're like, okay, this is what you're doing. I'm on my tippy toes right. leaning you're towards right. him. You're getting my aprons. Yeah. And so I convinced him to let me do this order. And then there you go. Headley and Bennett was born. And I think something about that moment is very important because I didn't have sewers. I didn't have any design background. I, hell, I didn't even have a sewing machine. I didn't, I don't even know how to sew. I had nothing, but I had the conviction that I could do it. And I was like, I'm going to figure it out. And then I did, I clocked out that that day. And I went and called every person that I knew and was like, who knows how to make a pattern? Who can I hustle a dinner for? And I started cooking for people so that they would make me pattern. So I like cooked a dinner for a friend and he made me a pattern. And I went somewhere else and I cooked somebody else a breakfast and they made me the, the apron and I just slapped it together in a really unglamorous way. And sometimes I think people think it's glamorous, but really like it's not. And, um, that's how I got my first order. And then we wore the aprons in that kitchen and there were things wrong with them. And the chef was like, Hey, Bennett, these aprons suck. Like you have to fix these. And I was like, well, shit, he's my only customer. I got to make them right. So I got them back and I spent all the money that I had made from that order on fixing the aprons, which was also an early lesson in business life that like, it's important. You have to look at the long-term picture of your people and the people wearing your stuff that you have to really take care of them, even if it's at your own cost or expense. And so he helped me develop the aprons essentially in that kitchen. And we figured out what was right with them, what was wrong, where the neck strap was wrong and the pockets were falling off. And then we perfected the apron. And from there I was like, I was hooked. I loved it. I loved experiencing the like joy in the chef's face in the same way that when you put a plate of food in front of somebody, their light face, their face lights up. It was like that, but with aprons. And I was like, Whoa, aprons are kind of like my dishes. I'm going to make this my thing. So I kept working at the restaurants and started going to farmer's markets and meeting with other chefs and just like not being afraid of being told no and just saying, hey, can I talk to you about this? Like, I have an idea and I'd love to show you what I'm working on. And people were like, sure. And, and I would show up. Why do you think up. they said sure? I think I was very excited. I'm, I'm an excited person about stuff. Um, and I think there was it was somewhat at the same time that chefs started to have the limelight, you could say, and nobody had thought about them. Nobody had thought about how a chef should have a beautiful uniform and something that looks amazing. And I come from the culinary world and I had the same problems they did. So it was sort of like all of the ducks in life lined up and they were like, all right, Bennett, let's do this. And so I started building this community of chefs that were wearing my stuff and and it was exciting and awesome. And I was still working as a line cook, mind you. And I just kept trimming down my days as I ran out of time because I was, you know, running around at farmer's markets, setting up at farmer's markets and then breaking down and then still going to the restaurant in the evening. So it was quite a lot of work, um, but nobody laid it out for me. There was no, you know, rule or guidebook to how to build an apron business. And a lot of people were like, that's really cute. 
good job on your cute little business. Like that's nice. And I just kept going and going and was sort of my, I, I like to say I was my own cheerleader. And then people started to notice and they're like, wait a second, that's David Chang wearing her apron. And oh my gosh, that's Michael Voltaggio. Wow. That's Suzanne going. And I just kept going and I just kept getting people on the squad as we call it, the apron squad. And you know, hundreds of restaurants and then thousands and then more and more people noticed. And there was such a collaborative effort behind every apron we designed because I would work with a chef and say, what do you like? What do you dislike? What are the colors in your restaurant? How can we incorporate your brand in a beautiful way that's not cheesy and it's not like some giant word across your shirt? Like, let's make it look awesome. And they were, they're all being handmade in America and I'm delivering it to you with like a hug and a smile and I'm going to do it faster and better than what anyone else is doing. And I'm making you something that's made out of like Japanese denim and is designed for a kitchen like why would you not say yes to us we had like all the things that we wanted to fix and I was I didn't know how to do business quote unquote I didn't like go to school about for it and so I was just doing it the way that I thought business should be done and I think that's a good thing because if you don't see the walls you kind of go right through them and you're like oh I didn't know that you're supposed to do that so I just didn't do that I did it a different way sometimes being naive can help you in some ways. And, you know, there's things obviously now we fast forward four and a half years, we have this 15,000 square foot factory in LA and we have all kinds of employees and people and things. And heck, we even have an HR person. I'm like, what? We have a CFO. Like it's your business. We're really real. And it's really not a joke. Right. <laughs> and I really, I really am responsible for all these people. And it's awesome and it's scary and it's crazy every day. And just because it looks like we're now more successful than when I started and now people look to you and say, oh, good job, Ellen. That doesn't mean it's easier. And by no means is it more stress-free. It's just different. It's like a different layer of life and kind of like you watch your little kid grow and then suddenly they're like, eight years old. You're like, Whoa, where'd that, where'd that come from? That's kind of how I feel a little bit now where, and I'm still figuring out stuff all the time. And that's, that's okay. That's the great part about it. Yeah. Not just because you're young, but your company's young. And with that enthusiasm and that I want to learn, I want to keep going. I want to be the best. Ellen, I just love your enthusiasm. And now we're going to do, I'm done with that. But first, I want to thank Braintree for sponsoring Mentoring Moments. Okay, so for everyone who wants to grow their business, you need to think differently. And that starts with payments. That's because payments aren't just a mechanical function. So start thinking how your payments solution can be an engine for growth. It can help up your conversion rates. It can help tap you into market growth. And it can help ease security concerns that are limiting your customer spending. And payments can be a great way to provide new experiences to your customers. So want to grow your business? Rethink your payments. Braintree, rethink payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com forward slash Forbes. Hey everyone, I'm Maggie McGrath, a staff writer at Forbes magazine and your new host for a show called Forbes on Trump. Politicians are all talk, 
no action. I'll be speaking with the editors and writers who are reporting on the 45th president. We'll hear what they're finding out about his wealth, his business associates, and the ways in which he and his policies are affecting the economy, consumers, and all aspects of the business world. Somebody has to come out and tell it like it is. Along the way, we'll dive into Forbes archives, which contain decades of information that will add context to the current White House administration. So listen to this. Listen to this. That's Forbes on Trump on Podcast One. Subscribe now at iTunes, and don't forget to rate, review, and share. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now back to Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari. And now we're going to do I'm Done With That. I'm done with that. Okay, what am I done with? I think that there was a time uh, when I started Headley and Bennett where I was very much just like, I'm, I'm just a little old me. I'm just a little old apron lady. Like, it was almost a little diminutive, you could say, on myself, where I was just like, no, I'm just like, you know, me. And and now I, I look at the things that we've done and I'm like, no, you're a CEO and this is your job and this is your responsibility and own it. Like, don't make less of yourself because you wear yellow skirts and look cute. That doesn't make less of the things that you have accomplished and you just have to keep going forward. And that is a might sound petty, but that's a, that was actually like a hard thing to go through um, because I thought, no, no, I'm just like, I'm just a line cook. You know, I was just a line cook. Now, yeah, I have a business, but I was just a line cook and it sort of like making less of the things so, that we've so accomplished. So making yourself smaller? Yeah. Yeah. And, and not to say that now I'm making myself bigger. I'm simply only owning the things that we have accomplished and not making less of them and then building from there. Yes. And saying, absolutely, I have a seat at this table because I got myself that seat at this table and it is my damn right to yes. be here. Yes. And I am not, nobody's doing me any favors. I got to where I am because of my hard work and my team's hard work. And when you can say that with confidence, you really do hold your head up a little bit higher, but in a good way. It's not, it's not cocky. It's right. not, it's not pride. No. It is simply you are you and no one is going to take that, make less of that. And, and that is really important because I think that when people start to see other people succeed, sometimes they can make less of it. And they're like, oh, she probably got funding. She probably got this. She got that. And they don't see the hard journey that you're on because you just don't see that on social media. You don't see the actual labor of like blood, sweat, and tears that goes into truly building something and the shit storms that happen. And they very much occurred. And I, you know, I have war wounds from having built this company, but I wouldn't have it any other way. But I'm also not going to let anybody just come along and say, make less of it for me because I know the journey that I just went through and I'm still on. And I think that is huge. And one of the things I was going, I thought about this morning in my, what I'm done with that I wanted to talk about today. And it's because I didn't know what you're yeah. going to talk about. So it's interesting is that I'm tired of saying we live in a man's world 
I understand all the statistics. I got it. That men make more. I'm not diminishing that. I'm not saying that's not real. And I'm not saying that we don't have to fight that. But I want us to quit saying we live in a man's world and to say we own this world as much as men do. Yeah. And it's not men against women. But I think if we keep saying it's a man's world, we keep diminishing ourselves. Absolutely. I'm only a woman. It's a man's world. Yeah. You, you know, you're I can't granting importance to something that we shouldn't be granting right. importance to. And I get it that more men make more money, but women are 50% of the yeah. population. Absolutely. So it's our world. Yeah. And I think we need to quit saying, so I'm going to stop doing that. You know, it's a man's world because that makes us smaller as women. It's 100%. Like, so I don't get paid more because it is a man's world. Right. It's like, that's, I, I mean, I know that it occurs, but in a way it's like an excuse or a crutch. And I think we just need to say, okay, we're going to own it. Exactly. It's, it's like the approach. It's the perspective. Yes. It's, it's our world. It's our world. It's Let's our do world. it. Yeah. Yes, you can just say it's, it's our, our world, world and it's sort of the same concept. It's just the perspective. And the reality on life. is still there. But it's just refocusing our attention to yeah. where we're going. It's not the negative. So I want to start doing that because I think if we put it out there, we put I the intention agree. out, it comes to yeah. us. Yeah. You know, just a, a funny thing on that note, at my office, when I focus on the negatives, a lot more negative stuff happens. Yes. Well, that's the energy one for one. right? Yeah. Negative energy attracts negative energy. Exactly. But when I go around my office and tell my staff, hey, really great job on this. You know what? We just have to fix this one thing over here as opposed to, hey, that really sucked what's wrong with you? And then walking away the first approach, 1 million times better. And then the staff is happier. I'm happier. So it's just like how you think about something. You can still say that same idea you can convey your message without focusing on the negative. And this is from a woman who lived her life in the kitchen where chefs aren't really that kind, <laughs> right? I mean, everything is, I've been in the kitchen and everything is, this sucks. You just screwed this up. This is awful. How could you be so stupid? And you, know, you, you're you just have to they're swearing at you constantly. Right. And you just have to find that sliver of thing that is positive and focus on that. And I think it really does help. I would, I would be like, oh, he just yelled at me and this is horrible. But wow, look at this restaurant. It's so beautiful. And I'm a chef here and I'm a cook and it's going to be great tomorrow. And then you just keep going. It's just accepted behavior, and the, which is a whole other conversation <laughs> in the restaurant industry. <laughs> so now we're going to do takeaways. So okay. I've asked our listeners to ask questions that they would want to ask you. And one of the questions is, how big do you dream? So you have your company now. You have, you're in over 4,000 restaurants. You have 30 employees. How big do you dream from there? I wrote this the other day on an Instagram post because I'm, I get really uh, into it on, on there. If you are on Instagram, you should follow me. It's fun. Uh, it's Ellen Marie Bennett. Yeah, so definitely follow her. <laughs> um, I didn't see your Instagram. Maybe, maybe our listener did. <laughs> um, I wrote this the, the other day. I said, um, the sky's not the limit. You are. You, you set the bar so high or so low. And I think that I set my bars very high. And then I accomplish them and then I set a, a bar that's higher and I just keep doing that and you just keep escalating your dreams. Um, and when you achieve one and you prove yourself wrong and you prove that you could do it, you gain a little confidence and you're like, oh, okay, let's try something else now. You can't get complacent. And so I am constantly dreaming bigger to avoid complacency in life and to make sure that I live life as the fullest that I possibly can. Because like I said earlier, we are here and we are damn lucky to be alive. So you better take life by the balls and like live it. Yes. And 
then let's go to the flip side of failure. So yeah. one of the other questions, which we get a lot, is how do you handle failure? How do you pick yourself up? Well, I definitely cry it out. I definitely have my moments at home with my amazing boyfriend who's also a business owner. So he fully understands the shit storms that happen in business. And, you know, I like embrace, I embrace the lows, I guess you could say. I just like truly, I, I cry, I'm upset. I talk it out. I find talking really, really, really helps. Um, so I talk out the entire scenario with my boyfriend and then we go on walks or I'll run around and I'll like listen to music and jog and run really fast and be like angry and listening to Depeche Mode or whatever. And I'm just like, ah! and then I get to the end of mile seven and I'm like sweating and I'm just like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And then I'm like, oh, well, you're still here. All right. Okay. Well, uh, maybe you can come up with a solution. All right. Well, what's the solution? And I sort of like talk my way into it and talk my way out of it. Um, and then I sleep. I sleep a lot. I like to sleep a good eight, eight and a half hours every night. I have to say it really helps because it like resets what time your do you go to bed? brain. Um, 11. And then I get up around seven, seven thirty, and go to yoga or Pilates or boxing. Um, and that, that's how I get out of it between exercise and sleeping a lot and talking it out and just getting a different person's perspective, because the truth is I'm wrong sometimes and that's okay. And admitting that you're wrong and then restructuring how you approach that scenario is a big part of business ownership. You have got to take responsibility. You can't be pointing fingers at others because at the end of the day, you're the captain of the ship. Chances are you had a hand in why something failed. So you well, have- I think in general, we can't point fingers at each other, right? Oh, if for something sure. goes wrong, we have a piece of that. Fully. If not all the responsibility, we have a piece of it. Yes. And when we do that, oh, you know, this went wrong because so and so. It's like, own it. Yeah. Get over it learn from it and move on fully, fully agree. And you're cut, you're actually cutting down your own ability by saying that somebody else did it. You're basically saying, I didn't have, I didn't, I couldn't do that. That person did that. Right. Don't, don't do that. Own that you did it and then fix it and then keep and going. Apologize. If you hurt someone's feelings, yeah. you did something wrong, apologize to the people that it impacted. And then you just got to keep going. But I really do hate the blaming on other people, yeah. you know, this isn't working well because, or this exactly. isn't happening because. And, and I actually find that when I spot what part of it I didn't fully embrace or what part I fully messed up on and I admit it to myself and I'm like, yeah, that was wrong. The moment I admit it and like, it's true, it kind of goes away for me. It kind of stops bothering me because I admitted that that happened and then I fix it and then I can move forward. Whereas if you ignore it, it's kind of like a little, a little piece of fire that you left behind under the rug. You're like, ah, it's not here, but it really is. And if you just own it and keep going, you can actually move forward. Right. And, and it lives with you when you don't own it. So when you're putting 100%. that under the rug, you're putting that in your body and your exactly. heart, your It's head. in you. Yes. It's in your head. Yes. It's in your heart. It's just like the wrong place to be. Just like put it out in the world, get rid of it, own it, move on. So is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is important that we tell everyone? Did we miss anything? Gosh, we covered uh, we so many failure, things. We talked about failure, success. We talked about you. But okay, I have one last thing tell before me. we go. Your pet pig. Oh my gosh, Oliver. Yes. yes. Okay. Back to Instagram. You definitely need to go to Ellen Marie and, and I will post, I will be <laughs> publishing a post and you'll be able, I'm going to post a picture of Oliver. Yes. Too. Oliver is my uh, apron squad mascot. We got him a year and a half ago. 
and he is ridiculous. He is 110 pounds now, little black pig. Not he so looks, little. Not so little. Very dense. He's very, <laughs> very thick. Very thick I, pig. I, I don't know why, but I think pigs are dense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. He's extremely dense. Dense and thick. Um, and so he lives at my house with, with my boyfriend and I, and we have six chickens. And uh, we live and in the- do they live together? Do the pig and the chickens live together? No, but they definitely hang out together. They- they drink from the same water bowl. It's you very- can tell I'm a city girl. I'm like, I'm yeah, yeah, I know. Like- As we sit in your Manhattan apartment, it's definitely not like this. It's in the middle of LA, but, but <laughs> it's in the middle of LA. <laughs> it's in the middle of LA. Well, it, you would think that we're in some rural place, but it's in the gut of LA and it's okay. And that again is a nod to just like build the life that you want. I want, I wanted a pig. I wanted chickens. I wanted a mini farm. And so we did that. And I cannot let my daughter listen to this part. <laughs> I've already sent her the picture of you and Oliver, and I think she wants to come live with you. Oh, I I will just say, whoever it is, wherever you are, like, you can do it. You are way more powerful than you think you are. Like, you have it in you. Just, like, yank it out. Make it happen. Pour some fertilizer on it and grow, baby, grow. Yes, and you're in, as I said, I will say it again, your enthusiasm and being a person who has employed people over the years – when you were talking about getting the restaurants and I said, you know, what is it that, that made them buy or made them say yes? I think a huge part of it, I'm not discounting that you're not smart. I mean, you're smart, you're witty. Your personality is so contagious in a wonderful way that you're right. The sky is not the limit. You, anything you want, I feel really confident, Alan, that you're going to end up with it. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be the day you want it. And it may be another story about getting that degree years <laughs> later. But the world really is yours. And I have to give you a big kiss. Oh, and a well, hug across the room. Thank, thank you. you. So but before we go, where me. can we find you? Where can everybody find you? Okay. So we are launching nationwide in Williams-Sonoma this year. So you can find us at Williams-Sonoma. Um, we're also in Whole Foods. We are online on our website, www.headleyandbennett.com. And uh, you can find us on Headley and Bennett on Instagram and Ellen Marie Bennett if you want to see the behind the scenes of the life of an entrepreneur. Um, And it's quite an adventure. And I welcome you to be a part of the Apron Squad. And I encourage everyone to go check her out. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I feel like I can do anything, and I really do mean this. When I grow up, I want to be just like Ellen Bennett. Her personality is just so wonderful. So thank you for joining us today on Mentoring Moments. And to make sure you're getting Mentoring Moments the moment it's live, subscribe on iTunes and rate and review. There's so many things we talked about today, so I want to leave with these three takeaways. The next time you say... It's a bump in the road. Remember that the bumps are the road. And if somebody says you can't do something, shut them up by succeeding and be a life taker versus a risk taker because you'll get bruised, but you'll have such a great adventure. So please come and find me. I'm always on Twitter at Denise Ristari. And before we go, remember to go to podcastone.com to find all the great sponsors of Mentoring Moments. Because of them, we can bring you the show each week with limited ads. To learn more about them, go to the Killer Deals link on podcastone.com and check out the Mentoring Moments page. Also, 
Mentoring Moments is a participant in the Amazon Associates Program, an affiliate advertising program designed to provide a means for us to earn fees by linking to Amazon.com and affiliated sites. You can link to Amazon at podcastone.com. So until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. I'm Mick Garris. When it comes to horror, you might know me as a writer, producer, and director, but I also love making people open up. I'm getting together with the most fascinating people in fright filmmaking. I'm going to pick their brains and find out what they know. But if they've got any secrets they're determined to keep, I have ways of making them talk. Download new episodes of Postmortem with Mick Garris every other Wednesday at PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. Commercial real estate challenges? For 160 years, companies around the world have trusted Savills for expert guidance and perfect workspace solutions. See what Savills can do for you at Savills.us. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following following the rule of law, is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States Uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.